baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome back, everyone. Good to see you all after a few days. For those of you who didn't get a chance to go down to Florida. Uh, this morning in the Rose Garden, the president was honored to host the swearing-in of Associate Justice Neil Gorsuch. His confirmation was the culmination of a thoughtful and deliberative process that the president started almost a year ago when he released his initial list of potential nominees for the Supreme Court. In September, he released a final definitive list promising to select only from those individuals to, who would continue the legacy of the great Justice Scalia on the bench. And today, the President celebrated our new Associate Justice, who will protect our Constitution for generations. It was definitely a great day to kick off the week and another productive week that we will hear, see here at the White House. Before I get into the uh, upcoming week, just a couple updates from over the weekend. First, the President spoke with Prime Minister uh, Lofen of Sweden to express our condolences for the loved ones who were killed in Friday's terrorist attack in central Stockholm, Sweden, and to wish a speedy recovery for those who were wounded. The President also called President Sisi yesterday to convey his deepest condolences to Egypt and the families who lost loved ones in the heinous attack that occurred there. Dozens of innocent people were killed and many more were injured on this holy Palm Sunday. The United States condemns in the strongest terms these barbaric attacks on Christians places of worship in Tanta and in Alexandria. The President also spoke with uh, the King of Saudi Arabia, the Prime Minister of Japan, the Acting President of South Korea, all about the United States' military strike uh, on the airfield in Syria. All of the leaders expressed support for the United States' necessary action in response to the horrible chemical uh, and bomb attack on innocent civilians. And yesterday he spoke with Commander Andrea, uh, Andrea Slow, the commanding officer of the USS Porter, and Commander Russell Caldwell, the commanding officer of the USS Ross, to thank them and their teams for successfully carrying out that strike. During these calls, the President communicated that he could not be more proud of the crews of these two ships and their flawless execution of these operations. As you know, these ships, between the two of them, sent 59 Tomahawk missiles and each of them hit all of their targets, showing America's power and the military's accuracy, uh, which is just a small representation of our military's overall capability and a fraction of what this President will continue to build up the military to be throughout his administration. The sight of people being gassed and blown away by barrel bombs uh, ensures that if we see this kind of action again, we hold open the possibility of future action. Um, the resulting action of, of, of what happened ensured that uh, their fueling operation is gone from this air facility. Twenty percent of their fixed-wing aircraft were destroyed and knocked out. And I think by all measures, uh, the world and domestic reaction uh, was highly uh, laudable for the President's action. Uh, additionally, obviously, we're all aware that the President had a very successful visit uh, with the Chinese President, and it concluded on Friday. 
As you've read, one of the most significant developments from these discussions was the agreement to create a 100-day initial plan, hopefully with some tangible near-term deliverables to lead to a more balanced economic relationship between our two countries. Uh, as that develops, we'll make sure that we provide you with additional details. And this morning, the President was glad to see Toyota announce that it will be spending $1.33 billion in its Kentucky plant as part of its plan to invest $10 billion in America over the next five years, a continued signal of the confidence American, uh, that businesses have in the American economy under President Trump. Now in terms of the week ahead, tomorrow the President will have a discussion on strategy and policy with several members of his cabinet and a group of CEOs. This is a follow-up from his meeting with 20 CEOs from the Strategic and Policy Forum uh, just this past February with some of those same business leaders and some new ones. First, they'll meet in small interactive groups, each led by a cabinet member, to discuss the priorities for those cabinet secretaries and their agencies. The president will then oversee uh, a report that will be presented to the group, uh, by the group rather. The cabinet level participants will be Secretary of, Ross, uh, Secretary of Commerce Ross, Secretary of Education DeVos, EPA Administrator Pruitt, OMB Director Mulvaney, and Secretary of Transportation Elaine Chow. Uh, we'll have the full list of additional participants for you later. Uh, as part of the effort to de-escalate the conflict in Syria uh, and press for a political process that can resolve the conflict and eventually result in a transition of a new legitimate Syrian leadership, U.S. On Special Envoy for Syria will be coming to Washington tomorrow for consultations with the State Department and with National Security Advisor McMaster here at the White House, among others. He has been overseeing the political talks among Syrian parties in Geneva. Uh, on Wednesday, we will welcome the Secretary General of NATO, uh, Jen Stolenberg, to the White House. The President and Secretary General will have a joint press conference later in the afternoon. And then the President plans to spend the Easter holiday in Florida, and he'll return to the White House on Sunday. Uh, as the President noted today, uh, we, as we hit day 81 in the President's uh, administration, uh, we have done so many great things, uh, including nominate and confirm a Supreme Court justice, roll back more regulations than any president in modern times, rolled back the Obama-era war on coal, oil, and natural gas, restored confidence in the economy. We're now seeing historic levels of consumer, CEO, home builder, manufacturer confidence. There's been a 12 percent gain in the stock market. Uh, and we've even seen uh, a real resurgence in the mining industry. We've reduced illegal boarding crossings by over 60 percent to the lowest level in nearly two decades and implemented historic ethics reforms, including a five-year lobbying ban and a lifetime foreign ban. Um, so with that, uh, I'd be glad to take your questions. Uh, why is it okay to bomb Syria but not okay to assist the refugees, one? And number two, what's the reaction, this administration's reaction, to uh, Russia saying we are running a danger of a real war with them in the Middle East? Well, with respect to, to, number one, the reason that we took action was, was multifold. Number one, to stop the proliferation and the deterrence of chemical weapons. And when you see mass weapons of destruction being used, um, it should be a concern to every nation, uh, especially our own people. The proliferation of those um, weapons pose a grave uh, threat to our national security. Um, so number one, we have to stop that. Number two, we have to stop ISIS. Uh, but with respect to the people of Syria, uh, by us taking action um, and de-escalating what's going on in Syria, that's the greatest thing you can do to support those people. Uh, de-escalating the conflict there, containing ISIS, 
um, is the greatest aspect of humanitarian relief that we can provide first and foremost. Secondly, uh, creating areas in which we can um, work with allies, including Russians, and committing to ensuring that there are places that don't that are free from violence and are places of free for people to gather uh, safely is another because um, I think everyone would agree that the last thing that people want to do there is leave. They want to stay there. They want to be in Syria. They want to have a pl safe place to remain with their families and not be separated. So our number one priority is to defeat ISIS, but we're also, I think, from a humanitarian standpoint and a refugee standpoint, ensuring that we create an environment uh, that provides a safe uh, place for them uh, to ultimately remain. Um, and, I'm so, and then on Russia in particular, uh, you know, look, I, I think that if you look at the countries that are with us, um, it, it speaks pretty loudly the number of countries that have stood shoulder to shoulder with this president. Uh, Russia, on the other hand, stands with Syria, North Korea, and Iran. Um, I think when you contrast the two groups of countries, sets, uh, it's pretty clear that we're on the right side of this issue. Troops. I mean, they're no, what, what it war. means. No, no. What it means is that I think the action that we took last week um, has been widely praised domestically and internationally as as a great step to ensure the deterrence and proliferation of chemical weapons and of action against uh, innocent people. When you watch babies and children being gassed and suffer under um, barrel bombs, uh, you you are instantaneously moved to action. I think this president has made it very clear that if those actions were to continue, uh, further action will definitely be considered by the United States. We continue to urge um, further the world community to join us in this, uh, in both stopping the deterrence and proliferation of those use of those weapons, but then further trying to create a political environment that will result in new leadership. Those, those, are, those are very important. Um, they go hand in hand. A coalition or I, I think we have a coalition. I mean, again, I think if you look at who's not with us, uh, it's a pretty small group, uh, and not a group that too many people uh, are looking to bring on board. I mean, you've got Iran, Syria, North Korea, and, and Russia on one side of this. That's, that's a pretty small group. Thanks, yeah. President Trump has spoken out extensively about the crimes of Bashar al-Assad in Syria. Does the president consider Assad a war criminal, and does he believe Assad should eventually appear before the ICC? I think right now the focus is twofold. One is defeating ISIS, and the second is creating the political environment necessary uh, for the Syrian people to have uh, a new, new leadership there. I don't think that there's um, – I, I can't imagine an, a, a stable and peaceful Syria where Bashar al-Shar is, is in power. I think we all recognize that that happens, and there can be uh, a multi-pronged approach where you're ensuring that ISIS is contained and there's a de-escalation of – of the proliferation of chemical weapons at the same time creating the environment uh, for, for a, a change in leadership. But does the President believe Assad has committed war crimes? I don't – I think that there is a, there's a court that, that decides those things and obviously there's a reason uh, that, that while I clearly – the actions when you take an action against the people that he has uh, and I think we feel unbelievably confident in, in the intelligence that we have. Uh, but again, that, that would be something for a court to decide. Charlie. A lot, of, a lot of people are talking about what the Trump doctrine is on foreign policy, what it may or may not include, and the president even stated that he was very flexible. Do you know what the Trump doctrine is on foreign policy, and can you explain it to, the, to us? Yeah, I think the, the Trump doctrine is something that he articulated throughout the campaign, which is that America's first. We're going to make sure that our national interests are protected. 
um, that we do what we can to make sure that our interests, both economically and national security, are at the forefront. We're not just going to become the world's policemen running around the country, running around the world, uh, but that we have to have a clear and defined national interest wherever we act, and that it's it's our national security first and foremost uh, that that has to deal with how we act. Action in Syria fits in that doctrine. Absolutely, I think if you recognize the the threat that our country and our people face, if there is a growth. Uh, of use or spread of chemical weapons of mass destruction, um, those the proliferation of those, the spread to other groups, uh, is a clear danger to our country and to our people. Kristen, John, thank you. Just want to follow up on what you were saying about Bashar al-Assad. Are you saying that defeating ISIS and Bashar, getting Bashar al-Assad out of power through a political process should happen at the same time? I, I think I'm not trying to how you sequence them, but I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I don't think that you can you have to do one other than others, but I think they kind of go hand in hand. As you reduce ISIS's strength, as you de-escalate the conflict in Syria, um, the political environment to remove him becomes stronger and stronger. And just to be clear, Secretary Tillerson over the weekend said we can navigate a political outcome in which the Syrian people will determine Bashar al-Assad's fate and his legitimacy. Nikki Haley seemed to align more with what you were saying. She said, in no way do we see peace in that area with Assad as the head of the Syrian government. So who better reflects the I, I don't think those are, I don't think those are mutually exclusive um, statements. Because I don't think, I think that you can, one of them saying we don't see peace with him in charge, and the other one is saying we, we, need, to, we need to have him gone. I think that's, that's the, the point of both. The goal for both of them, the goal for the United States, is twofold. As I've stated, it's one, to make sure that we destabilize Syria, um, destabilize the conflict there, reduce the threat of ISIS. But then secondly, is create the political environment, um, not just within the Syrian people, but I think you can, you can have work with, with Russia in particular to make sure that they understand that Syria, backed up by Russia's uh, own accounting, is be, should be held accountable for the agreements that it's made with respect to its international agreements on chemical weapons alone. And can you defeat ISIS with Assad still in power? ISIS with... Um, yes, sure. But I think that... Um, I think you can defeat ISIS with him in power. I think that obviously, to your point, it's not like there's a, a single track that says you have to do I mean, if, if we can get both at the same time or one happens after another, that's fine as well. But I, I think that we obviously the number one threat that America faces is ISIS in that region, and we've got to make sure that we do everything we can uh, to do that. And just finally, when Secretary Tillerson meets with his Russian counterpart, what is his specific message going to be? Is he going to threaten potentially more sanctions if Russia doesn't get more. Well, I, I think he is on his way there tomorrow, and I'll let Secretary Tillerson talk about his meeting with former Mr. Lavrov. I, I think he th there's a lot of things to obviously discuss, um, the, the overall fight on ISIS. But I think with respect to Syria in particular, I think we need to remind them uh, of the commitments that they've made and the commitments that Syria's made. And I think that, huh? I, I think that, that first and foremost, we need to make sure that we all understand what the, what the situation is on the ground. Uh, there is no question who acted in this case and what Syria did. Um, and I think that we need to make sure that Russia fully understands the actions that Assad took, the commitments that Syria has made, and Russia has equally agreed to those same you know, understanding. So getting them back on the same page, first and foremost, would seem the logical step. 
but secondly, and I guess you know, equally as important, is to make sure that the areas where we can find a commitment to defeat ISIS is something that we share, major. So would the President want the Secretary of State to put the threat of sanctions on the table to get Russia's attention in this matter? Because the Secretary yeah. of State said Russia, Russia is either complicit or incompetent. What does the President believe Russia actually is in this matter? Well, look, I, we'll have plenty of time to discuss how those talks go. I don't want to – the one thing the President has been very clear on um, from the get-go is he doesn't like to telegraph um, all the cards that he has. I think he wants to see how that conversation goes with Secretary Tillerson. If we can get them to agree uh, to commit to action on defeating ISIS, get them. Well, I, I think that's what they're going to have a discussion about. I think that we need to see uh, what goes beyond rhetoric and what goes – where that talk starts uh, and what they're willing to commit to in action. I think that's important. To get ahead of this right now um, before they meet uh, is not something I want to do. I want, I'd like to let Secretary Tillerson meet with Lavrov, have that conversation, and then report back. Jen. Can I ask yeah. you more quickly about the, the White House itself? What is the President's perspective on the ability, the current ability of his senior advisors to – resolve their ideological differences, resolve their personality differences, and work as a team. He's very confident in that. Um, the, because this is the same group uh, with the same ideolo ideologies, the same strengths. Uh, they came together for a common purpose to win a campaign. Uh, there is an unbelievably talented team at the senior level and at the mid-level and, frankly, all the way down to the bottom level of this administration um, that is committed to the President's agenda. I said this multiple times throughout the transition. that. Everybody that came into this administration, while they might have a personal view or an action on an issue, they understand and understood and understand the President's vision and agenda. And their goal uh, of coming into this was to understand, first and foremost, that it is the President who made pledges and promises to the American people about the direction he take this country and the actions he's taken. And, and he is doing that, and I just read off a series of them in terms of the judges that he's appointing, the Congressional Review Act pieces of legislation that he signed, the executive orders. When you look at the actions that he's taken and the results that he's getting, 60 percent down on the border, nobody would dispute the fact that immigration was a hot topic during this, during this campaign. And the President's actions are seeing results. Um, and, and I think you're seeing it both on the market and on our national security front. So he, he understands that we have some pretty smart, uh, talented individuals who are opinionated on a lot of subjects, um, but that our battles and our policy differences need to be behind closed doors. We need to focus and ultimately all come out committed to advancing the President's agenda. But he is, uh, he is completely uh, aware of the, top, the talent that he has, and that's part of the reason that he's brought this team together is because of the, the talent and successes and accomplishments they've had on a variety of backgrounds, and he fully uh, believes that they are going to continue to push forward to advance his agenda. philosophy that led him to have or order this meeting on Friday where the two principals, Bannon and Jared Kushner, were essentially told by the President, cool this and get along and get on the same page? Well, look, I think there's a lot of stuff that was overblown about this uh, that, that makes it out into to the media sometimes and gets a little bit more sensational than it truly is. But I think the President's obviously very pleased with the last week that he's had and the accomplishments, especially on the foreign policy front. I think we had an unbelievably uh, helpful and productive meeting with the Chinese. His meeting with uh, King Abdullah was unbelievable. And he's continued to have very uh, strong foreign policy wins uh, in terms of the, the relationships that we're making with other heads of state. The um, attack on Syria won not just bipartisan praise here at home, 
but world praise. And I think that he recognizes that sometimes some of this spills over, these policy differences and discussions, and he's made sure that the focus stays on, on advancing the agenda. So, John, uh, if, if you're saying one of the priorities is to see a regime change in Syria, how far is the president willing to go to see Bashar al-Assad out of power there? So, uh, just to be clear, I can't, I don't think it's, it's, you can't imagine a, a stable and peaceful Syria with, with Assad as, as in charge. I just, I don't think that's a, that's a scenario that's possible. But I think that the first step in that has to be to make sure that the region and Syria in particular are stable. You can't have ISIS um, marching through Syria and, 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 and then worry mostly about who's in charge right now. We've got to make sure that first and foremost in terms of our national security, I think it was Brian's question at the beginning, our national security is the first and foremost reason that we have to act. Um, and as ISIS is proliferating um, and mass chemicals of mass destruction are on the rise there, we've got to contain that. Then once that's done, I think we can apply political, economic, and diplomatic pressure for regime change. Um, now, they can, war they can work in tandem. I'm not trying to but, – but the bottom line is the first priority is still the, the containment of ISIS and the, and the conflicts that are occurring. The red line, just to clarify, the red line for this White House chemical warfare, is conventional warfare enough to get the president to go further there than, than this White House has gone before? Look, I, I think the president uh, has been very clear that there are a number of lines that were crossed last week. Uh, he's not going to sit down. Uh, we, we saw that in the last administration. They, they drew these red lines, and then the red lines were run over. I don't think you're going to see the same play. I think what not just Syria, but the world saw last week as a president that is going to act decisively and proportionally and with justification when it comes to actions like that. I mean, and I will tell you, the answer is, is that if you gas a baby, if you put a barrel bomb in to innocent people, I think you, can enact, you, will, you will see a response from this president. That is unacceptable. Um, and I think the rest of the world I, – I think, look, I, again, I, one of the things that I don't want to start doing, Cecilia, is say, if you do this, this is the reaction that you're going to get. The president's made very clear throughout his time in the campaign, through the transition and now as president, that he's not going to telegraph a response to every corresponding action because that just tells the, the opposition or uh, the enemy – what you're going to do and whether or not that response is worth taking. The president's going to be very clear that he's going to keep his, uh, his cards close to the vest, but make no mistake, he will act. John. Thanks a lot, Sean. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the reaction that the president took uh, in terms of military involvement last week. You said in your statement that all 59 of those cruise missiles hit their intended target, and yet we're seeing reports that that military air base in Syria continues to be used by the Syrian military. Yeah. Given that, how can you consider that particular mission a success? Well, because I think from, from what you're hearing, you've taken two pre-fueled planes and taken, and, and taken them off. It's a PR stunt. The bottom line is their fueling capability has been taken out, their radar capability was taken out, and over 20 percent of their fixed-wing uh, aircraft from their entire air force was taken out. Their ability to operate s successfully out of that air base is gone. Like I said, they, they, as a PR stunt, they took some pre-fueled planes, pushed them over to, to make it look like nothing is. But make no mistake about it, their radar capability is gone, their fueling capability is gone, and a good chunk of their aircraft is gone. That's a huge success. John Gizzi. I just want to ask you one other question okay. following up on what Major Garrett asked, sort of about this, these reports of a, a shakeup at the White House. 
there have been various reports that uh, the Deputy National Security Advisor, Katie McFarland, uh, is stepping down from that post. Uh, she'll take on the post of U.S. Ambassador to Singapore. Can you confirm that? And what's behind that particular move, if indeed that's the case? Uh, I appreciate it. I, look, I've said many times before that we're not going to get into personnel announcements until they're ready to announce. Uh, I would say that two, two points on that. One, uh, when General McMaster was announced, um, it was pretty clear. We said it at the time. You all asked the question whether or not he would have the ability to shape the National Security Council um, in, in his liking with the President's concurrence. I think you've pretty much seen that that's, that was a, an accurate statement at the time, and it continues to be now. Um, and General McMaster has the President's confidence to ensure that our National Security uh, Council is shaped in a manner that best serves the President of the United States in every way, shape, or form. Secondly, to, to your point, I think the staff said it over the weekend, I'll reiterate it, the only thing that's being shaken up in Washington right now is, or is being shaken up is Washington. I think this President continues to show uh, that he's going to be a disruptor and, and do things differently and bring real change to Washington. John Gizzi. Thank you, Sean. Uh, two questions. Uh, first, uh, the previous administration was in touch with the Assad opposition and gathered conclaves of different groups, including the Free Syrian Army. Is this administration in touch with the same anti-Assad forces? political and military. Yeah, I, I'm not going to go into details on what we're doing and who we're talking to. Uh, I think that's obviously didn't prove too successful last cycle, last administration in terms of regime change. So I'm going to not get into telegraphing what we're doing and how we're doing it. On the domestic front, Congressman Ron DeSantis wrote the President just last week to call in very strong language for him by executive order to end what he calls the OPM rule of 2013. That was an executive order, of course, that undercut uh, the Affordable Care Act's amendment <coughs> saying that members of Congress and their staff could not get health care and special subsidies uh, unlike any other American. And he said, as soon as that is eliminated, Congress will move faster because they and their staff will not have special treatment. Is the President going to use his pen and get rid of the OPM order? I'll have to look at that. I know Secretary Price has been dealing with a lot of – I know that's an OPM order. Secretary Price has been uh, reviewing all of the necessary uh, implementation documents and, and orders with respect to uh, Obamacare. I know that he's working with, with Director Mulvaney. Director Mulvaney, I anticipate, will be here with you guys at some point, probably tomorrow, to talk about some reorganizing of government. Uh, that might be an appropriate time to, to talk to him specifically about that. Dave. Thanks, Sean. Uh, the list of judges that the President put out last year mm -hmm. saying these are the people I would consider nominating that you referred to earlier. Uh, in the end, Democrats still tried to filibuster Judge Gorsuch. Right. So what difference from that perspective did the putting out that list make in the end? That's a great question. I think what it showed first and foremost is the President kept his word. Um, the President put out a list of people and campaigned on it and said, if you elect me, these are the type of justices that I will choose from. And they are originalists. They are going to read and interpret the Constitution as it was written and meant to be. Um, and I think the American people in, in a lot of cases, if you look at exit polling, uh, voted for him in a lot of cases because of that. I think it shows that um, again, whether or not you disagree or agree with the President, sometimes philosophically, um, 
he gets high marks for keeping his word. I think that means a lot that he went out on a num- on a number of topics, including the type of justice that he would appoint, um, put it before the American people, allowed them to vote up or down at the ballot box, and it's an affirmation of the kind of justice that he wants. Um, but it's also a continuation to know that that the president is going to be someone who makes a pledge to the American people and keeps it. He's going to obviously have other federal judges to nominate. Maybe hope so. Court judges. What else? Has he, what else did this process uh, teach him? Anything? Well, I, I think from a political side, it was pretty obvious that um, you can disagree with Judge Gorsuch's judicial philosophy, but I think by every standard, um, he was a very highly qualified justice. Uh, the American Bar Association rated him their highest. Um, the people who have worked for him in the past, his judicial record in terms of the number of cases uh, where he was in the mainstream and, and Democratic appointees sided with him. Um, and I think it basically showed the president that trying to work with Senate Democrats um, wasn't really a, a, was somewhat of a, a futile task, that these were people that made up their mind by and large, regardless of who the person was, and we're going to vote it down. Um, so uh, that, that would probably be the, big, the biggest lesson. But it also shows that when you've got the right individual, you've got someone who's eminently qualified, um, we're going we're gonna to succeed in getting them done. Blake. Well, let me uh, turn your attention to tax reform real quick, and I've got a few. There's a report out there that says the president um, has basically gone back to the drawing board as it relates to taxes. Yeah. Is that accurate, or no. does he still – what he put out there on the campaign trail, is that still the backbone of what he wants to see get done? Yeah, I mean, that, that's the backbone, but I, I think that what you're seeing is us going through this process of – his, his economic team, everyone from Secretary Mnuchin to Secretary Ross to Gary Cohen uh, and others sitting down um, internally and beginning that process of meeting with groups um, that have been advocating for tax reform since 1986, kind of the, the ink on that one dried, and starting to meet with outside groups, industry groups, individuals, members of Congress um, to get their input. Uh, this is going to be a major undertaking, and I think we want to make sure that we uh, listen, have their ideas and their input as we move forward. Uh, but th- this is the beginning phases of that process. You mentioned Gary Cohn. He said on Friday that there was, there's been this August deadline that Steve Mnuchin and others have talked about. And Friday, uh, Gary Cohn suggested that August might not be the deadline. Is this timeline getting getting pushed at this point? Well, it's not getting pushed. I think it's just getting uh, – obviously, that still would be a, a great – opportunity before they leave for August recess, but uh, we're going to make sure that we do this right, and we do it with the input of all of the individuals, groups, and members of Congress that have had a, a long-time interest in doing this. Uh, and, and it is a big deal, right? You've got uh, the ability for our businesses and industries to be more competitive in the global market, and then you want to make sure that you're providing t- middle-income tax relief that creates economic growth throughout the country. So, so Americans are filling out their tax reforms right now for 2016 this time next year they're going to fill it out for 2017 will they have a a 2017 tax cut this time next year i think middle income uh, americans i hope have a tax cut by then jeff Um, sorry it's that i know (laughs) (laughs) careful with that (laughs) (laughs) then candidate trump was pretty critical or excuse me was pretty complimentary of president um, now, after seeing how Russia has reacted in Syria, what's the view of President Putin now? I think it's always been the same, respectfully, which is that if we can get a deal, we have a shared interest, in, particularly in the area of ISIS. And if we can defeat them and if we can work with them 
on a plan to defeat them, then we're going to do it. But he's also said, and I think sometimes people cut off part of the quote, which is, and if we can't work with them, then okay. But the president came into office um, to really focus on two fronts, keeping our country safe and growing our economy and putting people back to work. Um, and I think if, if Russia or any other country can help us achieve those two goals, either through market access and additional products and services from the United States into a, a, a major marketplace, but more importantly, it helps keep our country safe through a combined effort to defeat something like ISIS, especially in a place like Syria where they're playing so prominently, then I think we want to work with them. But if we can't um, get a deal with them, then you know the president's not you know, going to be disappointed, but he would like to do what he can to work with these individuals to make it happen. Well, Jim. Would he, still, would he still describe him in the same way that he did several months ago as, as, as a leader who he viewed as stronger than President Obama? I, I think we'll, we'll wait and see. We're 81 days in. I think Secretary Tillerson will have a lot of information after he meets with Foreign Secretary Lavrov. Asking one other yeah. question on trade. Um, did, you mentioned the 100 days agreement yeah. that the pre president and the president of China agreed on. Uh, did China offer to give the U.S. some concessions on beef exports and financial investments uh, I, I think, part of that? Yeah. Look, th this, is, this is an initial working plan that they're going to try to hammer out what that 100 days looks like. Um, and then they, they call them like way stations. Like what are those stops between 100 days and now that would be things that both sides would be looking at? And I think uh, obviously beef exports and additional market access in China, intellectual property, the ability for to have foreign ownership, uh, especially in the services industry, is something that has been a big prize of U.S. exporters um, and industry for a long time. But it is something that is being hammered out as we go forward. So uh, that's – the, the plan was to put together a plan, and there's a lot of pieces that both sides would like to see in there and these, these benchmarks between now and those 100 days. But that plan uh, is something that they, they talked about putting together during the just, you know, over day that they met together. Um, and while and it is something that the counterparts are now going to continue to flush out. So there's a lot of topics that got put on the table. Um, we're going to see how that works. Jim. What is the status of uh, uh, a multi-part question? What is the status of the renegotiation of NAFTA, and what is the White House doing to tweak tweak NAFTA in U.S. interests? And is there concern about getting it done before the Mexican elections heat up at the end of the year? Well, I, the first thing with respect to trade is you know we need the, the Senate to approve Robert Lighthizer as the next U.S. trade uh, representative. Uh, that's obviously USTR drives that. Um, and so our focus is getting that done, and, and it'll be ready to go. We still have an official 90-day notification that we have to give Congress. Uh, and so once we get Ambassador Lighthizer confirmed, uh, we'll be ready to probably announce a better work plan on that. But as of right now, that's not there. Jeff Zeleny. Oh, thank you. In 2013, um, Mr. Trump, as a private citizen, had a lot to say about uh, Syria. One of the things, he said that the president, then President Obama, needs to see congressional approval. Some members of Congress, I believe he should as well. What is his plan to explain his uh, strategy in a broader sense, and why does he not need congressional approval in his view? I think Article Two of the Constitution is pretty clear that when it's in the national interest of the country, the president has the full authority to act. Um, he did that. Uh, he and his team spoke extensively to congressional leaders on both sides of the aisle um, that night to describe the action that's being taken forward. Um, so I, I think we have fully fulfilled every obligation, but the power vested in Article 2 is very clear with the President's ability to act. In 
terms of things happening here at the White House behind the scenes with his staff members, obviously there were some ideological and policy differences on this particular uh, military action last week. Mm -hmm. um, does the President believe or do you believe that this has been smoothed over in the short term or there has been a long term um, solution to the fighting between Steve Bannon, Jared Kushner and others? Are you talking specifically with Syria or are you talking I, I, when Specifically with Syria there was a disagreement but is this a, a short term fix to this problem or do you believe, does the President believe that there is a longer term fix? this infighting that has really plagued his administration? Well, well again, I, I'd say a couple things, Jeff. One is a lot of this is, frankly, overblown. Um, but number two is the reason the president's brought this team together is offer a diverse set of opinions. I don't – he doesn't want a monolithical kind of thought process going through the White House. He wants a diverse set of opinions. That's – he is the decider. He has people come in and give him a variety of options and plans. Um, he went back and forth over that 72-hour period where he wanted additional options, additional, uh, you know, uh, explanations and questions answered. That's how he's going to deal. And, and so whether it's this, health care, tax reform, trade, uh, he's got a divergent set of opinions on here of experts. The idea isn't to have one set of thought and policy flowing through there. It's to give the president the best advice possible. But that once the president makes a decision that the team is on board 100 percent to make sure that we do what's been the best interest of the country and fulfill the agenda that he's laid out. So I, I don't – I think you're – I think the president wants to have um, a, a series of ideas and, and thoughts put forward to him. That's how he's going to make the best opinion or best decision possible for this country. But it must have crossed a line if he uh, said to work it out. Well, I think sometimes – again, I'm not going to get into – uh, what happens internally, but I, I think sometimes sometimes might spill out in the public more than other things. But there is always going to be a healthy debate internally on a variety of policy issues uh, among the cabinet, among the staff, to make sure that the president sees every option that's available, every opinion uh, that he should weigh and counter before he makes a final decision. It's just sometimes I think sometimes those uh, those discussions may make them out a little bit more uh, publicly than they do. But I think you know as I noted at the beginning, I thought there was a lot of. Uh, overblown coverage of how it actually happened and what went down. He is very confident in the team that he has, that they have uh, a, an unbelievable amount of knowledge, um, and uh, and he, he enjoys the counsel that they all bring to this table. Thank you guys very much. I'll see you tomorrow. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.